Okay, so let's start with a question. What are some of the reasons that you might be intimidated by or confused by the Bible? Or maybe putting that question a little differently. Why can the Bible be challenging? Challenging to approach, challenging to read, challenging to understand. Any thoughts? It's okay to say, yes, I'm intimidated by the Bible, by the way. God's not going to strike you with lightning if you say that. It's big. Yeah, it's a big book. It can be overwhelming just in its size. Yeah, that's very common, I think. Any other thoughts why the Bible might be intimidating to you? Yeah, Ben? What is allegory and what is not? Uh, yeah. Yeah, how, how do we, what is the nature of the literature I'm reading? Yeah, is it, is it meant to be interpreted literally? Is it meant to be interpreted allegorically? That's a good one. Any other things? If you've ever been intimidated by the Bible or overwhelmed by it, why do you think that is? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, so the Bible in English is a translation. And so by definition translations are all, you know, that can that can make understanding the meaning more difficult. Yes. Not, it's, go ahead. Not fully knowing the original context, yeah. the original audience. Yep. So oftentimes there's like specific things it's mentioning or things that are being taught as the aim that the first the first audience would have understood but we but we don't. Yeah. That's especially true in the Old Testament, right? Which is much more ancient. And I mean, the New Testament's pretty ancient, but the Old Testament is much more ancient and much more foreign for most of us if we're Western people. Because at least the New Testament was written, you know, you know, in a Western language, Greek, as opposed to the old, which isn't, and it's just it feels very culturally distant, which can be overwhelming. Yeah. Any other comments or thoughts? Jonathan. Well, honestly, some of it is pretty boring. How dare you? Uh, the, the deserts of Leviticus. Yes. Some of the Bible, you know, many good Bible reading plans, well-intentioned Bible reading plans, the graveyard of those is the book of Leviticus. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, can, be, it can be boring. I think that's, that's true. Yes. Any other thoughts on why you felt maybe like the Bible is a struggle sometimes? Paul. Just a corollary to that, that, that some of it's not written to us, in a sense. In a sense, yeah. When you're reading through Leviticus, you're not reading through something you have to follow. Yeah, yeah. So there's a, I think that's, that's true. That's another way of talking about how it can feel very foreign, irrelevant, and distant. Yeah. Okay, those are, go ahead, Lauren. I think I try to apply it to me, you know, and it, then it feels like you can get a wrong idea of God. Yeah. A book like Leviticus is applicable to you, but not directly. It's only indirectly applicable. And how to sort that out can be really challenging. So we shouldn't should go out and stone our children. Yeah, I suggest you don't do that. So lesson one, maybe if you're starting to read the Bible, don't start with Leviticus. That's lesson one from your pastor. That would be a suggestion. Although Leviticus is God's word, don't start there. Um, Okay, I've titled the, the class Reading the Bible with Heart and Mind because I think both are really essential to um, get out of the Bible what God intends. And so let's ask another question. What would it look like to read the Bible with mind? 
but not heart. What does that result in and what does that look like? Yeah, so it can, it can result in pride, just gaining knowledge. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians, knowledge without love puffs up. Okay, what else? I think it would result in frustration because if it's just knowledge without a change of heart, you'll just fail. Okay, that's good. Yeah, it can be frustrating because... Just gaining knowledge without heart change does not actually produce transformation in your life. Yeah. Other thoughts? What might follow from just reading the Bible with the mind? Yeah, the Bible can very easily be treated, especially if you have a certain sort of wiring, be treated like a textbook. And there are endless ways you can use the Bible as a textbook because it's endlessly mysterious and fascinating and it's huge. So it's very easy to just, yeah, use it in that, from a scholarly perspective only. Yeah. How about the other way? How about reading the Bible with only heart? That might be a little more challenging. What does that look like and what would that result in? Yeah, Paul. One sense I think would be thinking that this is this is all God's word to me, and I need to apply all of it. Well, in a sense, you do need to apply all of it, but how to apply it? But when you read yeah. any given verse, yeah, it may not be instructive to how we should act, how we should. Yeah. So one must one must think about how he or she stands under the authority of any given verse. Yeah. And without that thinking, you're going to end in pretty muddled, confused, a muddled and confused place. What else? Other thoughts? If you let immature feelings guide your reading the Bible, you can wrongly interpret one verse to make it repugnant to the, the rest of the Bible. But really, it can lead, lead to wrong conclusions about God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Good. Spin it off that. Um, it's, it's deceitful how who can trust it. Yeah. Yeah. Our hearts can deceive us. Yeah. That's good. Any other thoughts? Okay. So I think it's important for us to just keep both of these in mind and balance them. We don't want the Bible to become like a cold document divorced from the active ministry of the Holy Spirit and read it only with our minds, nor do we want the Bible to just be something that we're emoting over only. Um, As the the Westminster Confession of Faith chapter 1 says that anyone can grow in their understanding of God through a due use of ordinary means. That's a 450-year-old way of saying through just like thinking and reading. Anyone, whether it's a little kid or a 90-year-old, can grow. So that's what um, I want us to do both of these as we approach Scripture. Okay, here's how I want to frame the class. There's seven questions, I think, that can really be helpful to ask yourself when you're reading any given part of the Bible. Okay? I'm going to give you the first one today. 
And uh, I'll give you, I'll, I'll provide an outline next week. I just couldn't get to that this week. Um, and we're going to try and get through all seven. But question one is, it might seem obvious, but you need to start here. What does this passage say? What does this passage say is the first question. If you read any part of the Bible, any paragraph, any chapter, any story, question one, what does this passage say? What is this telling me? I'll give you the other six real quick. Okay, question two, I'm not going to write them down. What did this passage mean to the original audience is question two. Someone mentioned that earlier. Question three, what does this passage tell us about God? Question four, what does this passage tell us about man? What does it tell me about me? Question five, what does this passage ask of me? Or what does it require of me? Question six, how is this passage about Jesus? And uh, we'll talk more about that later. But our hermeneutical presupposition is that every passage in some way or another is about Jesus. Um, And the last question, how can this passage prompt me to meditate and pray? How can this passage prompt me to meditate and pray? I'll give you a list next week with all those questions. Today, we're just going to probably get to this one. What does this passage say? When you read any passage, here's the way I'd like for you to think about it. I think it's helpful to try to summarize in your own words, in one sentence or two sentences, what you think that passage says. Think to yourself, how could I tweet this passage? You know, how many characters is Twitter? Like 160, I think. You get 160 characters. How could I summarize what this passage means in one sentence or two sentences? That helps us capture the biblical story in our own words, okay? And so, in order to understand what a passage says, we have to understand the type of literature we're reading, which is why I want to spend some time talking about this word, genre. Genre. The Bible is not unlike other books in that you read it based on the authorial intent. In other words, you're going to understand what it means. You're going to be able to answer what this passage says when you know what type of literature am I reading? How do I approach this? Okay? In other words, you have to understand the genre the type of literature of a passage. As Luke said, the Bible's a massive book. Really, it's a library of books. The Bible is a library of 66 different books, and 39 in the Old, 27 in the New Testament, that has all kinds of different forms of literature and styles of writing. And it's really important to understand any form of literature to know what genre it is. So an example from the world outside of the Bible. If I'm reading a, a biography, probably my favorite biography is The Rise and Fall of Theodore Roosevelt. But Theodore Roosevelt, by the way, was a biographer's dream as a president. Amazing life. Reading a biography, you approach that with different thoughts, different presuppositions than if you're reading uh, Macbeth, if you're reading Shakespeare, or if you're reading um, like a 21st, like a John Grisham novel. Or if you're reading a a love sonnet by John Donne. All those forms of literature we approach differently. So, for example, if you're reading a biography, what expectations might you have of the biography you're reading? What What would be a fair thing to expect of it? That it's true. That it's historically accurate. That's very important, right? What else? Other thoughts? 
that it's descriptive, that it's telling a story that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Usually, the beginning and the middle and the end of someone's life. Yep, Thomas. It's chronological. It's chronological. Yep, that's good. How about if you're reading uh, a love sonnet or a holy sonnet of John Donne? Poetry. What are the expectations you should have when you approach a poem? No, now all of you are like, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, it's intended to move your heart specifically through the use of images, right? Poetry is about the use of images. Poetry is not descriptive in the way that a biography is descriptive, right? Other thoughts on poetry. Yeah, it's, it's often designed to be read out loud and in community from one person to another. That's right. So in just normal world, the type of literature we're reading, our understanding of it is dependent on the genre, right? And that's also true with the Bible. The Bible, as a library of books, contains all kinds of different genres, different types of literature. I'm going to give you, we're going to talk through one, two, three, four, five. I'm going to give you what I think are the six major genres. Actually, why don't you all help me? If you're thinking about the Bible, what are the big types of literature we find there? Wisdom. Okay, historical. I'm going to call that narrative. So this is two-thirds of the Bible, by the way. Historical recounting of events. A story. And really, if you think about the whole Bible together, the whole Bible together is best understood as a story. It has a beginning, it has a middle, and it has an end. It has a plot, it has a setting, and it has characters. It's a narrative. Okay, someone else, James, what did you say? Wisdom. Wisdom literature. And so this is usually poetry or proverbs. That's another quarter of the Bible, probably, is the poetic literature, okay? What other narrative, or excuse me, genres can you think of? Music. Okay, there's music. I'm going to put that in here. Music is just a form of poetry. <laughs> Prophets. Yes, that's a big one. Prophetic. All right, I've got three. Apocalyptic literature, I suppose, would be a subset of that, right? No, I'm calling that its own. Okay. Apocalyptic. <laughs> I'll define that later. Letters? Yeah, epistles. Also known as letters. That's the majority of the New Testament, is epistles. And then the last one is really, you could call it a subset of narrative. I call it... Biographical? Yeah, gospels. The gospels. Capital G, gospels. So there's different ways to break it down, guys, but that's my breakdown. Those are the six major genres that you find in the Bible. And if you're going to read any part of the Bible, knowing what genre you're reading is very important. And often, misinterpretation and mishandling of the Bible is rooted in thinking a text is one genre when really it's another. Okay? There's all kinds of examples of that that we'll get into later. Luke? No, it's not wisdom. Leviticus is narrative. Really weird narrative. Leviticus is very, it's a very ancient Near Eastern form of narrative. That's what it is. The entire Torah is narrative for the most part. And there's, you know, little subgenres within 
music is a good example of a subgenre. Um, there's all kinds of subgenres, but yeah. There's long discourses inside of narrative. Right. Sermon, a, like a discourse or a sermon would be a subgenre, even of the Gospels or narrative. So when Moses stands up and gives, really the whole, the whole book of De- Deuteronomy, in a sense, is like a big sermon, um, a very long sermon, by the way, that uh, is a subset of narrative. Okay, so those are the six genres. I want to walk us through a little bit of each genre um, just so we can have understanding, and then we're going to practice interpreting a few texts. Okay, narrative, story, is the dominant genre in the Bible, as I said. The overall structure of the Bible is a narrative, and here's the key thing that you've got to get about narrative. This may be go without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. Stories are composed of events, not ideas, Okay. Stories are composed of events, not ideas. It's not abstract is another way to think about it. It's concrete. And it's very, to me, very interesting why God chose to reveal himself not in abstract ideas. God does not give us a systematic theology. God gives us, by and large, a massive story. And I I have my own ideas behind that. But that's, that's an important thing to think about. What's that? What are they? Your ideas behind it. Well, I would just say, God, the the because we're made in God's image, you know, think a story predates the written word. Oral stories were told far before stories were written down, and every human culture in the history of the world derives its identity in part by its story. And I think God, because he made us that way, when he chose to reveal himself to us, he reveals himself in, in sort of by, by boxing himself into a way that every human culture gets. Does that make sense, Jonathan? You want to add to that? Okay. I'm sure you, you could. Um, so the Bible is, narrative is primarily a story. So when you're reading any story, and this is true with the Bible, it's important to identify the unifying action or actions of a story and not just reduce them to ideas. Just as an example, when Abraham in Genesis takes his son Isaac to the top of Mount Moriah to kill him based on God's command. If you read that story, just that's Genesis, I think 22 or 23, it is just a brilliant, just on the, a purely narrative level, it's brilliant. There's foreshadowing, there's tension, there's irony, and it's important to read the Bible in that way. Stories consist of, you know, this is like taking us back to high school, consist of plots and settings and characters, and all those are really important, especially in reading the Old Testament narratives. So narrative is the main genre of the Bible, and the meaning of the story, here's another last important point on narrative, The meaning of the story comes from the narrative as a whole, not from the narrative isolated into fragmentary parts. Okay? So to understand the book of Genesis, you need to take the book of Genesis as a whole. There's a reason Moses, who's probably the author of Genesis, structures Genesis the way he does. And to fully understand Genesis, you've got to take Genesis as a whole. Um, Any questions on narrative? I'm just wanting to summarize these so we understand genre before we practice. Okay. Poetry. Let's just call it poetry slash proverbs, the wisdom literature. Did you all know in almost every culture, 
poetry precedes prose as a form of writing, uh, almost always. And um, about a quarter of the Bible is poetry. What is the ba- I've already given you all this. If the basic unit of narrative is storytelling, plot, character, uh, setting, what's the basic unit of poetry? It's image, imagery, okay? Poets think in images, not in abstractions. And uh, in the Bible, poetry is, you know, when you see the Bible in verse form, for example, you know, y'all know what that is? Like, here's Isaiah 45, when there's like indentations at the beginning, that means it's written in verse. It's written like a poem, okay? Um, and, And the Psalms are the obvious example of how imagery drives meaning and imagery drives interpretation. So poetry, and this is crucial, is figurative, not literal. Thank you. It's figurative, not literal. So a couple of examples. The most famous of all Psalms, uh, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down by still waters. Okay, picture that image. Picture it like 72 degrees, not 180 and you're lying down by still water in green grass, what is being communicated through that image? Peace. Peace. What else? Rest. Rest. Yeah. Safety. Good. Those are good examples. The poetry is being communicated through the image. The meaning is being communicated through the image. So there's images like that. There's also uh, similes or metaphors. Just one example. There's a million examples of this. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 103. And just as one example, David says, uh, where is it? As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place is no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting to those who fear him. So when that psalm is saying, we're like grass, that's a simile, right? What is being communicated? What's the truth behind that? We're short-lived. We're fleeting. We're going to blow away soon, as opposed to the Lord who is from everlasting, who will not. So that's an example of the main form of poetry in the Bible which is parallelism. I know I'm dumping a lot on y'all. Our Western poetry is usually, you know, it's based in rhyme and meter. Eastern poetry and Hebrew poetry specifically is based in parallelism. So if you read in the Psalms and you see something repeated in slightly different language, that is a way that the poetry is seeking to emphasize the meaning they're trying to get across. Um, For example, Psalm 121. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. That is parallelism. In a sense, it's antithetical parallelism. God's going to take care of you in the daytime, and he's going to take care of you at the nighttime. The point is, God's going to take care of you. Does that make sense? So poetry is given through image, okay? It's given through our senses, and it's especially helpful to be read out loud. Okay. Yeah, Andrew. Uh, So does it really... Yes. 
rhythm plays into poetry in Hebrew, and also, like, there's a number of the psalms that are like acrostics, for example. Every letter of the Hebrew alphabet, the word starts with each letter. And we lose all of that in translation. Yes, not all of it. We lose a lot of that in translation. That's one of the good reasons to learn the original languages. Yeah. Um, any other questions on poetry? Okay, let's go th- forward. Prophecy. Okay, what, is the, what do you think of when you think of prophecy as a genre in the Bible? Revelation. Telling the future. <laughs> Revelation. Um, that's what I bet most of you thought of. Here's what's going to happen one day. And that is not the main point of prophecy in the Bible. Okay, prophecy does have some foretelling. But by far the majority is forthtelling. In other words, by far prophecy is concerned with what the Lord thinks about a given situation in the present. And the Lord speaks through a prophet to um, communicate his either judgment or his blessing about what's happening in the state of the world now. That's almost always what prophecy is about. So prophecy is not, you know, predictive of the future usually, although sometimes it is. By, by far the majority of the time, prophecy is concerned with present-day events, which, by the way, is why prophecy is one of the hardest things in the Bible to read. If you read through Jeremiah, that is one hard book. Ezekiel, very hard book. Why? Because they're talking about nation-states that stopped existing 2,500 years ago. And they're talking about towns that you've never heard of because they, they're buried under, you know, all kinds of rock. They're talking about names that you're totally unfamiliar with. But that's because they came true? Yeah, it's hard. A lot of it, I mean, it does come true. But the main concern of the literature of the prophets is with their time and their day. Now, they do take, you can, we can extrapolate out of that truths that still are the case now, of course. And God wants us to do that. But prophets almost always begin with the situation in their own nation and world. And they're much more focused on the present and on the immediate future than they are on the distant future. Um, kind of, If you want to just get a, a dose of prophecy, the best book to read is the book of Amos. Because it's manageable. I think it's like nine chapters in the minor prophets. Instead of trying to read all of Isaiah, which would be amazing, um, a more bite-sized chunk to get a feel for what prophecy sounds like in the Bible is the book of Amos. And if you read the book of Amos, his main concern is with um, how evil Israel is and how they're mistreating the poor and how that God is sick of their worship services because they honor him with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. And he says, because you've been so terrible, I'm sending, usually it's like Assyria or Babylon, to wipe you out in an act of judgment unless you repent. So prophecy is very concerned with both predictive judgment and predictive restoration. Does that make sense? So when you read Isaiah, when you read Zechariah, when you read Amos, when you read Nahum, they're almost always about, because you've been bad, I'm going to do X. Usually it's send some nation to enslave you or take you over. But if you turn back to me, I'm going to do Y, which is usually bring you back to your home and restore you. Okay? And um, so we'll talk more about interpreting prophecy later in the class. But that's just a, an idea, uh, some thoughts on the prophetic, the prophetic genre. Can you explain the overlap between wisdom literature and prophetic? 
yep. figurative language. Yeah, there is definitely overlap there. Prophecy is very often figurative. And when we get to apocalyptic in a minute, it's the most figurative language in the Bible, in a sense. And, you know, it would have been unfortunate to be called to be a prophet in some ways because God often used the prophet as like a living example like having Jeremiah lay down in a dung heap for like three years, you know, not great. You know? And uh, Ezekiel's Valley of Dry Bones, like these famous prophecies. So there's certainly overlap. Yeah, there's a Venn diagram between those for sure. Okay, let's, let me pl- fly through these other ones and then I want to let us do some work together. Gospels are in a sense a subset of narrative, but who are the Gospels mainly about? Jesus. Jesus. They're about the the actions and the teachings of Jesus and the responses of people to Jesus's actions and teachings. And one other thing to get about gospels, by the way, two other things, gospels have all kinds of sub narratives. Like the sermon on the Mount is three chapters of Jesus teaching. It's a big sermon. There's also, you know, encounter stories where Jesus will like the woman at the well, John four. It's a great sort of subgenre where Jesus encounters a woman at the well and it's about their dialogue there's other stories in the bible that are like um, in the gospels that are like quests almost like uh, when jesus takes the three disciples up to the mount of transfiguration that's a um, a quest narrative in a sense um so there's all kinds of subgenres within the gospels but the last thing is that all of the gospels intention is to persuade the gospels are intended to persuade they're a narrative with the explicit intention to persuade the reader to believe that Jesus is who he says he was. John says this at the very end of John's gospel. Remember John 21? He basically says, this is a summary. He says, I've written all this, and I, if I wrote everything Jesus did, it would fill a million books. But I've written this so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And by believing in him, you have life. And Luke does the same thing, by the way, at the very beginning. He says, Theophilus... I've, you know, Luke's Mr. Diligent, type A, compile, I've compiled all this stuff and I've put together this narrative and I've interviewed all these people that saw all these events. And the reason I'm putting this together, Theophilus, is so that you will know that Jesus is the Son of God. Gospels are narrative in persuasion. Does that make sense? Okay, Uh, what else have we not covered? Oh, the epistles. Oh, yeah, and apocalyptic. I'm wanting to kind of run out of time before we get to that. Um, The dominant New Testament form is the epistle, a letter, what are some th- we're in an epistle right now in our teaching series on, on, in worship. What are, what are what are significant pieces of epistles as a form of genre? Thoughts? Exaltation. What's that? Exalting like encouragement. Yeah, encouragement. They're intended to they're written to specific people dealing with specific issues in a specific church usually and they're intended to encourage or warn or rebuke. Go ahead, Stacy. To instruct. What did you say, Thomas? To instruct. Yeah. They also have a form, usually. Hey, Paul, we sign our letters at the end, or our emails, or our TikToks, or whatever. (laughs) Uh, We don't write letters anymore. Um, Paul did it at the beginning. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the church in Galatia, to the church in Corinth, to the church in Ephesus. And then at the end, what does he do? Hey, grace and peace to you. Say hi to this person, and 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 this person. And uh, I'm writing this letter with my own hand to tell you how much I love you. So they have a specific structure. The main thing to get about epistles, other than what we all said, is that all of them are occasional. O-C-C. In other words, 
none of them are just, again, abstract ideas. They're all written to specific situations, to specific churches in specific times. There was an occasion that caused the writing of the letter. That's less true with some, like Hebrews and Ephesians are less occasional than, say, Galatians. Like, if you read Galatians, Paul's like, I'm super ticked at all of you, and I'm about to come throw a beat down at every single one of you if I show up there because you've abandoned the gospel. That's why I'm writing you the letter. That's, a, that's Galatians. Philippians is, I love you all so much, I wanted you to know it. So, I bet you wish you were at Philippi and not Galatia. But anyways, those are very occasional letters. First Corinthians, very occasional. Every chapter he's like, I've heard that you were doing this. I've heard you were thinking that. I've heard that someone taught this. Here's what I'm going to tell you, right? And so we extrapolate from these occasional letters meaning that can apply to our current age. Okay, last thing, apocalyptic. That's a word that we don't use anymore. The word apocalyptic is a Greek word, and it means revelation or unveiling. So the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, literally is called the Apocalypse, the Apocalypse of St. John. And uh, what is chiefly revealed or unveiled in apocalyptic writing is the future, the distant future, usually, okay? And there's two major parts of the Bible that are apocalyptic, highly apocalyptic. The first is Revelation, the last book of the Bible. Anybody want to take a guess what the second is? Daniel, the second half of Daniel is also highly apocalyptic. And um, so the apocalyptic literature is thinking about end-time stuff usually. But, listen, don't miss this. It's also portraying principles that are valid throughout history. Okay? In other words, the spiritual conflict between good and evil and God's sovereign control and ordering of what's happening in the world are chief concerns of apocalyptic literature. The main things to get about this genre is that it is highly, highly, highly symbolic. And they use very specific things in their symbolism. Numbers, colors, animals, lion, lamb, dragon, beast, cataclysmic, cosmic events, uh, and a balance of warning and comfort. So Jesus actually goes into a little bit of apocalyptic in Matthew when he preaches a sermon on the Mount of Olives. And he says stuff like, I saw the sun falling from the sky and blah, blah. All that stuff is Jesus using apocalyptic language, the apocalyptic genre to make a specific point. So that's apocalyptic. So my point is, to wrap up, Understanding what genre you're in, what the intent of the author is, and why the author used his or her genre helps us answer what does this passage say. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to give us, we've got about, um, you know what, We're, they're not going to start without me. Let's, let's take as much time as we need. We've got, uh, I'm going to give you three texts, okay? And uh, let's see, how do I want to do this? I'm going to have you break up into groups. That'll be fun. Split up into like groups of three or four or five. And I'm going to give you three different passages. And what I would like you to do is ask the question, what does this passage say? And after y'all talk about it for a couple minutes, someone write down, if you can, in one or two sentences, what tweet it. Tweet the meaning. Give me 160 characters of what you think it means. Okay? So split up. Here's the first passage. Deuteronomy chapter 6. 
verses 1 through 9. Remember, the question I want you to answer, what does this passage say? So y'all work through that for two or three minutes and then try to summarize it. And if we have time, I'll give you another text. Ready, set, go.